If you brought your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you didn't and wish that you had, we have some outside on the table. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, grab one of those and keep it. It would be our gift to you. We would, we would love to put uh, Bibles in every uh, hand uh, in the room for certain. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Again, uh, we stand we read God's Word, so let me ask that you do that now if you are able. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would, by Your Word, by Your Spirit, write the truths of this Word on our hearts. That we might be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um... In case you're visiting with us this morning, just a, a heads up in where we are. Normally, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, right now, you've caught us week four um, of a five-week series on uh, the bumper stickers of the Reformation. If you were uh, a Protestant in the early, mid part of the uh, 16th century and and you put bumper stickers on your horse cart, uh, your bumper stickers would have said, uh, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, for God's glory alone, except it probably would have said it in Latin. Um, And we started that five-week series on October 29th, on Reformation Sunday, to to celebrate this 500th uh, anniversary of... Uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, We have so far uh, considered Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and this morning uh, we'll look at Christ alone, solus Christus. They obviously, I've, I've kind of more and more as, as I prepare for these sermons, you, you realize just how much those things actually overlap. I mean, you know they overlap, but it, it gets to the point where you start feeling like you're saying a lot of the same things because you know, if you deny grace alone, then obviously you're denying faith alone and, and Christ alone. If you deny faith alone, if you say, well, I, I need faith plus works, then somehow or another you're saying Christ is insufficient. You're saying that, that Christ is fine I and mean, Christ is all you know, good and all, 
But he didn't do enough, and so I've got to add more to it. You can see they all overlap. They aren't uh, so perfectly uh, discreet um, and separable um, from each other, distinguishable uh, from each other. The heart of the question for the Reformation, and in many ways the heart of the question for us, you have to answer this question for yourself. It's, it's also a question for our culture, for the world in which uh, you and I live. But the heart of the question is this. Is Christ enough? Is Jesus really enough? Uh, must I do more? Is there, is there anything else that, um, that I can add to what Christ has done for me that I might be saved? Uh, is Christ adequate to save me from my past sins? But once I turn to Him in faith, what about my future sins? Is there something else I have to do to deal with those? Is there some other form or, or method of forgiveness for my future sins? These are all questions Martin Luther had to wrestle with. These are all questions, quite honestly, that you and I should be wrestling with. As Luther lacked assurance of salvation, the church is teaching things that he can't find anywhere in the Bible. He was actually left with, with greater turmoil, greater struggle, greater angst than he had ever known. Who am I to add anything to Christ? Or for that matter, what could I possibly add to Jesus? In what ways could Jesus possibly not be enough? Well, Paul answers those questions for us right here in Colossians 1. Right here in these, this passage that we just read. Paul tells us, first of all, uh, we see the, the supremacy of Christ in creation Maybe, I, you know, y'all know this. Y'all know I, I'm a, I'm, somebody's already picked on me for it this morning. I, I majored in math in college. Okay, I'm weird. Y'all think I'm nuts. You don't know what to do with that. That's fine. Um, I think in lines a lot of time. I, I like to think in sort of straight lines. And, and it helps me to sort of see this passage really as a timeline, but then also to turn it vertically, for those of you nodding, following along with me. Hey, math, I can do math. Uh, to see not only a timeline, but a, a hierarchy, if you will. In other words, Paul shows us that Christ is supreme in creation because He is before. Notice verse 16. By Him, all things were created. How did everything get here? How did... How did the sun and the moon and the stars end up where they are. How are trees planted? Where did the ocean come from? Oceans come from. Where did the land come from? Where, mountains and streams. Where, where did all that come from? Well, here, John 1 echoes this. Christ created all that is. By Him, all things were created. Um, 
And that means, verse 17, that He is before all things. If He's going to bring into existence all that is, if He's going to be the Creator, then He had to have existed before creation. That that makes perfect logical timeline sense. In other words, Paul sets Jesus on a timeline, if you will, and he says, Christ is greater than all of creation. Christ is supreme over all of creation, in part because He was before all of it. He's he's making reference, of course, the Creator, who is therefore not Himself created, and who was before creation, He's setting Christ up to be God. He's looking to Christ as, yes, Creator, but because He is before everything else that has been created, then He hasn't been created. He must be God Himself. He's clearly setting Christ to be before all things. Why is Christ supreme in all of creation? Well, in part because He is before all of it. But He's not just before it. He's also above all of it. Now don't let that word firstborn in verse 15 throw you off. The Jehovah's Witnesses make a bigger deal out of that than they should. They make the claim that Christ really, see, He's the firstborn of all creation. He was created too. He was the first created being. He's the first one to to be created by God. He's not also God, they argue. He's not eternal. He's not God. He's created before anyone or anything else. That's the, the argument the Jehovah's Witnesses make. That's not what Paul is saying here. He can't be eternal creator and created at the same time. It won't work that way. But there's another, another way to make sense of that word firstborn. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout Old Testament history, throughout Jewish history, the firstborn son received the honor of the inheritance. The firstborn son was the honored son throughout Old Testament history. Some of you in this room are going, yes. Some of you are not so happy right now. Are glad maybe things have changed and maybe maybe dad's going to split things up 50-50 since there's two of us or, or third since there's three of us. Christ isn't created. He's the, the greater of all of creation because He's above it. He's higher than it. He's the Son of blessing. He's the the one that inherits all things from the Father and who will share that inheritance with His people. He's not a, a created being. For that matter, we could have 
We could have used, sometimes we do, we could have used the Nicene Creed for our affirmation of faith earlier. And it's, it's Arius, it's the, the ancestor of the Jehovah's Witnesses that, that gives us in part the Nicene Creed where we say He is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What the Jehovah's Witnesses believe is not at all new. It was around the beginning of the 4th century. Jesus isn't created. He was before all of creation. He's also above all of creation as the, the son of the inheritance, the honored son. But Paul goes on in verse 16. What are the things that what are the things that scare you? You could watch the news and see what's going on in countries all around us, all around the globe, and that could scare you. You could watch the news and see what's going on politically in our country, and that could scare you. You can watch the weather. We do live in North Alabama. You could watch the weather at certain times of the year and just decide, you know what, I'm going to spend all of, of February, March, in the, the, the closet under my stairs because there are these tornadoes that I just don't want to deal with. What are the things you might even worship or that people around you might worship? They may worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. They may worship angels. They may worship heavenly beings. Kings, rulers, political parties, money, even Satan himself. Paul says in verse 16, all of them are subject to Christ. That even Satan himself is on a chain. Notice verse 16, by him all things were created Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, you name it. Everything you might worship. Everything in creation that you might be afraid of. Everything that might scare you. Anything that keeps you awake at night. Christ rules over all of it. In fact, they exist because... He set them there. They exist because He's created them. Christ sits above everything that has been created. Whether in heaven, in heaven or on earth. Whether it's, it's some angelic invisible being, some sort of thing out there you can't see, or whether it's actual created order. Christ sits over all of it. He's above all earthly powers. Christ is supreme in creation because He's before. He's also supreme in creation because He's above it all. For that matter, why does math even work? For that matter, why is it that 
that we how is it that we're able to send rockets into space? That we can do the science to figure out how to lift this big heavy rocket, not just off the ground, but out of our atmosphere? Or, or how is it that we can call that gravity a constant? We know that gravity works at 9.8 meters per second squared. We just know that. We use that kind of stuff all the time. Or, for that matter, why don't yellow and blue ever make orange? You remember the Ziploc commercials? When they started adding color, you knew the Ziploc bag was closed because yellow and blue make green. How come yellow and blue and blue don't make orange? I would love, just once, for to mix colors that I know yellow and blue and they're supposed to make green, I would love to get orange. You know why that stuff works? Because Christ holds all of creation together. Creation makes sense. Creation is constant. We can count on these things. Because, verse 17, in Him all things hold together. Creation only makes sense in Christ. Creation only makes sense because He is the God of all of it. He has spoken it into existence. He holds it all together and He makes it do what it's supposed to do. You remember remember Forrest Gump? I hated Forrest Gump. I couldn't stand. The soundtrack is pretty good. I hated the movie. This, this is where in the pulpit you say, and I can't recommend the movie because there's stuff in it you just don't need to see. That feather just blew wherever the wind took it. Aimless. Purposeless. Sheer dumb luck wherever it went. For that matter, speaking of dumb luck, how many times did Forrest Gump meet the president? Life is like a box of chocolates. You have no idea what's coming. You have no idea. It's totally random. You're going to reach in there and grab something. And, and the little chart at the top of the Whitman sampler, it's a lie. It's not true. You have no idea what you're getting. That's not, that's not true. That's not what Colossians says about the world you and I live in. It is actually traveling towards a purpose. It's actually traveling towards an aim. It actually has reason and, and, and aim and purpose for all of creation. All things have been made by Christ. In Him they all hold together. And there's purpose and aim to human history. It's not senseless, but makes sense in Christ. Creation only makes complete sense in Christ. This passage shows us that, that, that Christ is supreme in creation because He's before and because He's above. But it also shows us that Christ is sufficient for redemption. You know, there's some debate as to whether Paul wrote these words or not. I don't mean, did he write Colossians or not? I mean, were they, was this passage, this Christ hymn, these verses 15 to 20, were they original to Paul or did he take them 
from somewhere else. They may have been a hymn the church was already singing as, as early as the uh, mid-60s, I guess, at this point. Just 25, 30 years after the death of Christ. It may have been a hymn or a teaching tool that the church was using to teach about Christ because, because you notice, I mean, you read that passage, read it twice. And you'll notice all the, the parallel between the first half and the second half. It's, it sounds, it almost reads like a three stanza poem or a song to Christ. You have echoes of language and, and symbol in the second half that you have in the first. Notice verse 18. Christ is sufficient for redemption because of who He is. Paul changes his focus in verse 18. You ever click on Google Earth? You get on Google Earth and it's the big globe. And then when you enter an address, the globe spins and the camera zooms in all at one time. And if, you, if you're given to motion sickness, it could probably be dangerous. You almost get the sense that that's what Paul's doing in verse 18. He's gone from a view of Christ in all of creation and narrowing the focus, zooming in onto the church itself, the very body of Christ. He's the head and body, he's the head of the body, the church. The beginning, the firstborn of the dead, the fullness of God dwells. In Christ, on earth, among men, verse 19. You and I have been created after God's image. Christ is God in our image. Christ takes on flesh. He's in all the the fullness of God dwells in that body in Christ. You can hear echoes of Isaiah 7. The promised Messiah we shall be called Emmanuel. You know, I have this, um, I have this little card. I assume you can still get these at Christian bookstores. I, I'm not entirely certain. But on this card, it has my name and then what my name means. And I, I don't remember what it means exactly. Grace is in there somewhere. I don't, I don't know how John and Grace connect. I don't see that at all. I don't, I don't, that makes zero sense to me. So when we, when we talk about, oh yeah, your name means this, I'm thinking, I, yeah, whatever, you're just making that up. In Isaiah 7, in talking about Christ, who's going to be God with us, Emmanuel, they literally took the Hebrew word for with and the Hebrew word for us and the Hebrew word for God, and smushed them together to make it a word. It would be like you took with us God and named a child with us God. That's exactly what Emmanuel is. It's God with us. His name literally means God has come and taken on flesh and lives and dwells with and among His people. Christ is sufficient for redemption because of who He is. He's God 
in the flesh, on the earth, walking and living among us. He's God incarnate. He's this this hymn, this passage sings the praises of Christ because God has come to us. Would you would you have gone to God? Would you have said, Well, wait, hang on, God, you don't come to me, I'll come to you. I'll cross this chasm myself. Would you have become God rather than God become man? But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. We can't cross that chasm ourselves. We can't become God. We can't reach to Him. He has to reach to us. Christ is sufficient for our redemption because of who He is. Because He's the Messiah is God with us. He's fully God. God has come down to us. He stooped to take on flesh. But Christ is also sufficient because of what He has done. Not just because of who He is, but because of what He has done. Notice verse 20. The hymn shifts from God coming to us in Christ to us going to Him in Christ. Through Christ we have redemption. Through Christ, peace has been made by the blood of the cross. Peace is only needed when there's war. Peace is only needed when two enemies are face to face. And the only reason we're enemies with God is because of our sin. In other words, there's no reason to come make peace between two people who aren't warring, who aren't at odds with each other, who aren't at enmity with each other, who don't who are getting along just fine. You say, well, I mean, God and I, we're good. I don't really need Jesus. He and I are fine. That's not what Scripture says. But we're at enmity with God and need peace. We need reconciliation. You don't bother bringing reconciliation to a relationship that isn't broken. A relationship that's just fine doesn't need reconciliation. Look at the language Paul uses here. It's exactly what he's talking about. Through Him, through Christ, through the God-man to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The God-man bled. The God-man died. The God-man suffered and shed His blood on a cross that there might be peace with God and reconciliation. How bad do you really think things are? I mean... We don't, we don't really see ourselves as guilty, rebellious sinners. We see ourselves as 
not dead, but sick. We, I, did, I did battle yesterday. I have a bruise to prove it. I swear I think I broke something in my thumb. I did battle yesterday with my lawnmower. Trying to fix my riding mower. I I was convinced it was just a simple electrical problem that all I really needed to do was was kind of give my battery a good jump start and I'd be able to to start that thing. I'd have it going again. And when that didn't work, I thought, let me just try this spark plug. I'll take that out and clean it a little bit and see if see if that won't help. I thought, surely all I really need is just a little jump start. Isn't that how we see our sin? I'm not really dead. I'm just kind of sick. I don't need someone to take my place and suffer and die. I don't need God to come to earth and take on flesh so that, so that He can redeem me, so that He can make peace with God, so that He can reconcile me to God because I'm really not that bad. I really need what I really need, just a little, just a push. Just kind of point me in the right direction and give me just a little shove in the back and that'll be good enough. That'll be all I really need. We don't see ourselves as dead in sin. We don't see ourselves as violators of God's holy law, but as sort of smudging the lines just a little bit. We don't see ourselves as as unable to save ourselves. We just need a a point, and a push. Paul says here in Colossians 1 that what we really needed was for God to come to us. We needed, there was was no other way for us to be saved. We needed God to come and take on flesh and live a holy and righteous life in our place and to suffer and bleed and die On the cross, by the way, even that alone should make you go, that's judgment language. Jesus dies on the cross, that's that's judgment language. Sin is that big a deal and we think it's really not that much. We need God to come to us. We need God to become one of us, that he might actually bleed and die in order to make peace with God. We could ask the children's catechism question, what is God? God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body like men. But he bled. He died. How is that possible? Because he took on flesh. Why was that necessary? So that we might be redeemed. Christ, Paul paints a picture of an all supreme, all sufficient Messiah. How would you improve on that? What exactly would you offer to God to say to Him, I get it. I totally understand that Jesus is 
before all of creation, that He's the eternal Son of God and, and is over all creation and in Him all of it holds together. I understand that my redemption is, that He's sufficient for my redemption because He's God come to me and has accomplished righteousness and death and, and the defeat of sin in my place. So that I might have access to you. I get that. But. What would we add? How could we improve on that? What in us could possibly be good enough that we would say, yeah, but God, I'm not really so bad. I mean, I'm better than most of these other yahoos in this room. What in the world would we offer God. Or what would make us say Jesus is good, but not good enough? Jesus is fine, but not quite enough. I've got to do fill in the blank to make his work better. What would you put in that blank? If anything, then this passage says, run to Jesus. Because there you find in Him everything. Before, over, all of creation. Perfectly, totally, completely sufficient for our redemption. Why? Because... Because he's God himself, fully God, fully man. And because he's reconciled us through his life and his death. Oh, that we might say with the reformers that we find all we need in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You alone are worthy of our praise and worship. You alone are all sufficient for our redemption. You alone have accomplished all that is necessary that we might be saved. And so, Father, we pray that You would take this Word and grow in us deeper faith, greater gratitude, and a loving response to Christ. And a heart that hurts for those outside of Christ, that we might proclaim this gospel message of hope to all around us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.